Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. The Best in the World podcast with Richard Parr. Hello and welcome to The Best in the World with Richard Parr, where each week I speak to a world or an Olympic champion to find out what they do differently from the rest of us to be the very best. I've recently been listening to a podcast called The Comedian's Comedian by Stuart Goldsmith. And unlike me, he just keeps this beginning bit very succinct and gets straight to the interview. So I'm going to do the same today because we've got a great guest for you. I am speaking to the 2008 kayaking K1 1000 meters Olympic champion Tim Brabants. He's the first British canoeist to win a gold medal at the Olympics. It's a really good story because Tim is not only a champion in kayaking but he's also a doctor working in an emergency room. So we talk about his career, how he managed to juggle both how he managed to juggle both of these roles. We also talk about his world title victory in 2007. And he also talks about his new job with British Canoeing where he's recently joined the performance coaching team. He's also really into his data and his technology, so we delve into that as well. So let's get to it. Let's speak to the kayaking Olympic champion from the 2008 Games, Tim Brabant. The Best in the World podcast with Richard Parr. Tim Brabant, welcome to The Best in the World with Richard Parr, a world and Olympic champion in sprint kayaking. It's so great to have you on the programme. Of course, we're going to talk about your incredible career, but first let's catch up with what you're up to at the moment, because of course you retired from the sport a few years ago. Yeah, I retired in uh, 2013, so uh, shortly after London Olympics, I realised it was the right time to retire from from paddling. Um, The whole way through my career, I've been um, developing an alternative career which was medicine um so i'd qualified as a doctor in 2002 and had kept my hand in in that going back to being a doctor full-time for for periods of about uh, a year to 18 months immediately post each olympic cycle um so i went back to being a doctor for a while um and then just recently in fact what three weeks ago um a big career change and i've joined the um, performance coaching team for british canoeing to, to coach the future champions uh, within our sport. 
Oh, fantastic. How's that been? How's the first three weeks? Is it like being back at school? First day back? <laughs> yeah, it's, it's kind of strange um, being on the other side of the, of the boat, so to speak. Um, having been on the water, I've got a good understanding, having been coached and been an elite level sport for 20 years. Um, it's great to have the opportunity to put back some of that knowledge I've got and some of the experience I've gained through working with lots of different coaches over the years um, and, and start, you know, start a new career as a as a coach, um, working with some very, very talented athletes at the moment. Uh, obviously, as you mentioned, you retired in 2013 and had a very successful career and, and you now join this team, uh, this performance coaching side of things. Is there anything that this, is t- this team is doing that you've already seen in these three weeks that is different to what you were doing when you were competing? Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. When I was competing, I spent a lot of time training on my own um, because just how it worked out. In the early days, I had a group with me. And then as yeah, latterly within my career, um, it, it just worked out that most of my training was done by myself with just me and my coach um, occasionally other people coming in um, and we had a, a very sort of disparate group of athletes uh, around the country whereas fairly recently we've centralized our training base up to Nottingham to home pier Ponts, the National Water Sports Centre um, and that's made a big difference because you've got uh, athletes from the uh, Olympic and Paralympic program um, of, across all disciplines um, are based here now so the, the slalom top end slalom guys are still down in lee valley um mm. but the development team and 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 fair few paddlers are still up here as well so it's good having this centralized system because you've got a wealth of knowledge and experience um from different coaches and different um parts of our sport are all together um and mixed together with the um sort of organizing body within our sport as well british canoeing so it's a it's it's a good environment to be in a really sort of professional high performance uh, environment with everything you need uh, at your fingertips. Mm. Was it lonely training by yourself? 
Um, not really. Most of the time, I was quite happy. As I say, it was either just me on my own for certain sessions, sort of ones where I didn't really need a coach or anything, and then other times just me and the coach, and then other sessions with other people. I quite, I quite enjoyed that mix because um, at times you needed to be able to just focus on um, yourself and the way you're paddling and not be distracted by other people and uh, yeah, training at different speeds and effort levels compared to what you're, the target you were trying to achieve. Um, and then other times it's really good to have people to push you. Mm. So it was a, I, f- I found a good mix that I was quite happy with. Yeah, I guess when you're the best in the world, it's hard to find people just as good as you. So <laughs> hard to be able to push you quite as far. Um, you said there that where where you're based in Nottingham with, with the Federation now, it's got everything you need. Now, one of the videos I watched before doing this interview with you, you were talking about a lot of the uh, data and analytics involved in in the sport. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Because for the normal spectator all we're seeing is a man with a paddle in a boat but there's a lot more to it than that isn't there yeah it's something from early days as an athlete my coach was very uh, forward thinking and progressive so when heart rate monitors first started to become available um he was encouraging us to buy some really basic um, heart rate monitors that were very very simple not particularly reliable results um but we started in that view as the first bit of data we could record. And then we moved on to using the Nielsen Kellerman uh, rowing type speedometers on our boats that use a small propeller underneath the boat to measure speed. Um, and then slowly as GPS came in, we started having GPS units on our boat again, which weren't massively uh, accurate in their data. And, and it's kind of progressed on through from that now. So we have uh, sensors on the paddle shaft to give you uh, an idea of stroke rate. Um, we're developing things to do with power um, transfer through the paddle shaft as well, um, GPS speed units. And so you can have a real-time uh, feedback of your speed, your stroke rate, and your heart rate um, all in one watch sitting on the front of the boat. Um, and then we've got other units as well, which are kind of commercially available, uh, that are high-resolution GPS with accelerometers in that we have on the back of the boat has no display on it um that you can analyze after the session to give very very accurate uh, split results and speeds and and it allows us to build up a database over key sessions uh to, to monitor our improvement in our performance and uh, and race profiling Mm, fantastic and you mentioned heart rate there and obviously being a doctor i know you've worked in accident and emergency have you always been a person who's been attracted to places of high pressure because being an Olympic athlete is a lot of high pressure working in A&E has that always been just your interest <laughs> yeah I don't I don't know if I'd quite describe myself as an adrenaline junkie because that sounds wrong that sounds like I'd like skydiving and skateboarding <laughs> dangerous things like that I, I kind of assess risk with those things and uh, avoid them but I, I do certainly enjoy a, a relatively high pressure environment and high performance environment um a and e i particularly enjoy the team aspect of it because you're working alongside yeah the, the doctors nurses porters radiographers uh yeah various healthcare assistants all within the department that are all vital to enable the department to function appropriately um and it's a bit yeah very much the same within um, elite sport as well you've got many different um facets to the performance team from from the coaches the athletes the uh, sport analysts physios massage people um and strength and conditioning coaches 
uh, along with a host of other people in the wider team uh, that are all essential to the functioning of a, of a high-performance sporting team. Mm. I guess one of the main differences is that in the operating theatre or in the A&E or everything like that is you have to get it right every single day, don't you? But unlike, say, um, when you're training, you, you can make mistakes, can't you? Yeah, I mean, you can argue that the consequences of making a mistake in training is yeah, not, not winning a race or not getting the result you want, which is, in the grand scheme of things, far less important than making a mistake that can affect somebody's health. Mm. Um, but, you know, this is the, the performance sport side of things is about getting people faster and stronger. And I think you have to still apply the same amount of effort level and thought process and seriousness to all the decisions we make mm. um, to ensure... You know, we help our athletes achieve the very, very best performance they can achieve in a in a safe, supported environment. Mm. Uh, as you mentioned, you you've been a qualified doctor since two thousand and two, and it's out of all the hundred odd people I've spoken to on this podcast, you're you're one of the the very few who was almost in another job and had another job ready when they retired. Um, I want to get onto that more in, in just a moment, but was there anything in particular about having studied medicine that gave you an advantage in the boat? I, I wouldn't have said that studying medicine particularly gave me an advantage. In, in actual fact, it was probably a disadvantage having done such a ridiculously <laughs> intense <laughs> degree um, and taken that career path because... I'm pretty confident I would have won more medals uh, at more championships if I hadn't done medicine and if I just focused entirely on sport. But I wouldn't be the person I am today or I've had half the experiences and, and skill sets I have now if I hadn't done that. Um, so the actual study of medicine doesn't help much when it comes to training because you don't learn much about – you learn about the human body, obviously, and how it goes wrong. But you don't learn a lot about yeah how high performance and training and how to – make somebody faster that sort of stuff you can pick up relatively quickly uh, from a bit of bookwork and most of our coaches here know the physiology of of how to you know what systems we're trying to train for each and every session um, and you can pick that up relatively easily um, but I think the key point was having something that I could rely on it was essentially a vocational degree um, so that when the time came when I either chose to retire from sport or could have been forced out through retirement or poor performance, um, that I had a, a, a career ready to go. Because I think that certainly helped with the pressure side of things a lot, knowing that there was another option at the end of it. A lot of athletes reach the end of their careers and they don't know where they're going to go afterwards. Um, and that can be particularly difficult for the athletes through the career. So I, I'm a firm believer in um, yeah, hard graft during the training process to build a, a bit of a plan took time out during university to focus on on training which allowed me to compete and train full-time in the build-up to sydney olympics in 2000 um with uh, you know culminated in in a medal from the game so i think if you plan effectively it can actually help your sports performance um well um, and within world-class funding program uk sport lottery funding we have performance lifestyle advisors. Um, so we have a very good one that works with us uh, called Emma Groom. She helps the athlete and encourages them and, and probably at times nags them um, <laughs> to ensure that they've got something else going on uh, in their life apart from just sport. Um, our head coach at the moment, Rene Olsen, he also is the same, very, very keen to accommodate athletes having yeah, who are at university at the moment. 
like this morning, one of our guys, he's got lectures starting at nine. So he's in the gym at, uh, at seven this morning to try and get his session done um, in time before he could go to uni. And, and, it, and it's key. You have to have a kind of supportive environment around you, in the training environment um, and you know, focusing on your studies or your career plans at one stage and then being able to then step away from that and focus on your sport performance and other times. Mm. And by the sounds of it, you, you come across as a very organised person, Tim. Has that always been the case? Uh, <laughs> I'm glad <laughs> it comes across that way. <laughs> um, I think I've always had been fairly ambitious with my plans and my targets um, and then you know, made sure I strive to achieve them. Um, it's been the hardest time recently, actually, because I was on a training in medicine I'm you know, training to be a consultant in emergency medicine and I was reaching a point where I realized that to um, I had this opportunity to leave the program and become a full-time sports coach and that was a, a, a difficult decision because I'd already achieved always achieved targets that I'd set I'd always you know, become a doctor I'd become an Olympic champion a world champion European champion and the target I'd set myself was to become a consultant in emergency medicine so it was a bit of a battle in my head to move away from that and think actually maybe I'm not going to achieve that I'm going to go in a slightly different direction but um, sport has a funny way of pulling you back in um, and when there's an opportunity to work with some really talented athletes and really talented coaches and support team uh, it's very hard to not want to be part of that with that process of making plans and, and goals, Tim, what do you do? Are you someone who will sit down for an hour, half an hour, write things down? Will you discuss with people? Will you set goals at certain intervals? What is your process for that? So it depends very much. I mean, from the coaching side of it, things, I'm still learning my coaching style. Um, so learning from other people. Yeah, some people are very, very plan-driven and the way we're operating at the moment is very much like a business would operate. We have our, our, our short, medium and long-term goals and what we need to do to achieve those goals and the targets we need to hit to get that and it's all written down. Um, we know what speeds and times we need to, to get to achieve certain outcomes um, and we can monitor that, especially with, like we talked earlier about the performance analyst side of things, you can monitor your progress in that very, very well, um, which helps you along the way. Yeah. And it also gives you positive encouragement that you're doing the right work. Mm. So let, let's talk about your actual your career and, and going on to become a world and Olympic champion. Obviously, you, you went into some very big races. What was your typical pre-race routine like? So I, we talk about this a lot, actually, currently as well. Um, so the routine uh, is important to keep it as a routine. So sticking to the same things as much as possible because that helps mitigate your anxiety levels to a massive degree. Um, I also firmly believe in in putting yourself in uncomfortable situations regularly, um, which enables you to be used to that sensation. It's like when you go into an exam and you rock up at the exam. It's incredibly stressful, but most people aren't used to putting themselves under that much pressure. But going into medical school finals, there's a lot of pressure, but I'd already sat the start line of you know, world and Olympic finals at that stage. <laughs> and you know that once you put a lot of effort and work into trying to achieve something, it's it's just part of the process of achieving it is to go and deliver it um, based on the hard work you've put in. So keeping that routine helps with the nerves, reminding yourself you know, the amount of effort and work you put in. Uh, and with that, whilst a big competition, you know, 
for me, probably the, the highest pressure was was Beijing Olympic final in the thousand meters because I was world champion from the year before. Everything pointed towards the fact that I should be winning this race, and if I didn't, that's probably was my only opportunity in my whole career to become Olympic champion, a realistic opportunity to become Olympic champion. But everything had gone well in training. I knew I was fit, and fast, and strong. There's absolutely no reason I could see why I couldn't be. So you just stick to the same routine, same warm-up routine, the same sort of mental rehearsal, physical rehearsal, um, uh, and thinking of the same race plan and not getting distracted by um, things around you. Because things do change around you, and you just have to make sure that you are robust enough to cope with those changes without being distracted, um, which would stop you delivering a decent performance. Mm. So what was your personal routine, Tim? What would you do on the morning of a race day, for example? So my my plan would always start the night before um, with packing my bag with the kit I needed, making sure I had my body number, the vest, the racing stuff, the you know, kit to warm up and cool down in, um, knowing what bus I was going to get if we were at a race or competition and you had to rely on the, um, the sort of organised buses down to the course, um, having a backup bus plan as well, um, <laughs> what time I was going to get up, what time I was going to have breakfast, when I was going to leave, and then... When I got to the course, I'd know what time I'd roughly get there and then know how to fill pretty much every minute of that time. In the, some of it would be sitting, thinking, you know, focusing. Other times would be warming up on the land, then going out for a water-based warm-up. I'd normally go out an hour and 20 before the start time of my race, spend about 20, 25 minutes on the water warming up, come back in, get changed into my race kit. Um, it's just, yeah, relax a bit, run through my race plan in my head, and then... Uh, and get ready to, to go out 20, 25 minutes before the start time of my race again. Um, keeping an awareness around me as well as to the, the timetable, if they're running to time, um, because you don't want to be going out in the water and then suddenly finding that they're running 20 minutes late, and you're going to be out in the water for 40 minutes instead of 20 minutes before your race. Um, so keeping that same routine, whether I was racing a, a domestic competition in the UK or, or yeah, Olympic final overseas, keeping that routine it, it gave me some familiarity of what i was trying to do and what i was trying to achieve and that certainly helped with the nervous side of things so i knew what i was going to be doing the best in the world podcast with richard parr We'll have more from Tim in just a moment, but I want to tell you that Audible is one of the leading suppliers of audiobooks in the world. They've got over 180,000 titles for you to choose from for your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or MP3 player. I really use their product. I've listened to books by Zlatan Ibrahimovic, Andreas Iniesta, Daniel Bryan, Arnold Schwarzenegger, all various different sports books. And you can get one free audiobook download if you want to test out their service. All you've got to do is go to audibletrial.com forward slash best. That will give you a free 30-day trial of their service that includes one free audiobook download. Perhaps it's one of those great sports books that I have just mentioned because I highly recommend them. So go and check it out, audibletrial.com forward slash best. All right, let's return to the conversation with Tim Brabant. The Best in the World podcast with Richard Parr. As you mentioned there, 2007 world champion, 2008 Olympic champion, and that was your third Olympics. You've been at Sydney, you got a bronze there, no medals in 2004. What was different in that 
Olympic cycle from 2004 to 2008, what were you doing differently that helps you become the best in the world? It was mainly getting the balance right. I'd qualified as a doctor in 2002, as I say, and then I was trying to work as a doctor part-time. Uh, I just got married. I was, I was living in Nottingham. The main coaching group was down in London. I was commuting backwards and forwards, and I hadn't hit quite the right balance. And I think when it came out to Athens as well, um, I broke the world record in the heat. So I was on good physical form, but hadn't had really consistent delivery of 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 sort of podium winning uh performances in the build-up to then and so after athens i went back to medicine full-time for 18 months kind of worked on just general fitness um so when i came back into the sport i came back in as a full-time athlete for the first time ever in my career uh and spent you know two and a half years building building up to to beijing olympics as a full-time athlete with a sole focus on on performance um i was resting properly recovering properly making gains in the gym on the water and in competition and started to consistently perform so i was i was getting to the point where i was i'd go to the world cups and the europeans and worlds knowing i was going to get a medal in whatever event i did and just you know knowing it's either going to be a gold silver or and sometimes a bronze and and so that confidence in my own ability and performance um brought me into Beijing in a, in a really good strong place so that I knew I'd done everything right um coming into it that to the only mechanical failure or severe illness or injury was going to was going to stop me from winning mm. and I was watching back that Olympic final and it was an incredible performance and you, you won by what in my opinion quite a relatively big distance and there were thousands of people watching people running uh riding along on bikes uh, obviously that you've got a lot of eyes there probably more eyes than you would get for a, a normal meet in in kayaking uh how were you able to keep how were you able to not be nervous what was it just that routine again yeah i mean in sydney i was massively inspired by the whole olympic movement um being my first games and i think that helped uh, get me to raise my game to be able to deliver a medal there um, and so I, I found it a really positive experience I didn't find it distracting I kept you know I tried to keep a level head to remember what I was there to do I wasn't there to you know enjoy the Olympics <laughs> like a lot of people get to <laughs> if that makes sense you enjoy it but it's only on reflection afterwards you can't get we were raced in the second week um, of the games right up until pretty much the last day so you're not going to get to go and watch other competitions and watch other people compete and, and get you know, get their medals. Um, we shared a, a hotel with the, the rowers in Beijing um, and you'd see them coming back and they've got their gold medals. And I'm, I'm not a believer in superstition and things, but I, I didn't want to be distracted by looking at their medals and like, holding their Olympic gold medals because at that point I'd never held an Olympic gold medal myself. I hear that's a faux pas. Yeah, I don't. I don't know. I just. I was super confident that I was going to win my own. So I was just like, just be patient, and uh, I couldn't wait to get racing. Um, so I think it's just important to remember that you're racing against the same athletes you've raced against maybe three, four weeks before at a World Cup. It's the same officials, the same starters, the same coaches, the same people around in the boat shed environment. Um, as any other competition it just has a different label uh, and more people on the bank watching 
so as long as you stay focused um the way i raced in beijing i followed the same race plan i did as any other time um but it just happened that i was out out in front i didn't have to change my race plan and i hadn't raced like that internationally before in terms of i'd always had a yeah a good battle with other people normally in front of me and and passing them in the last bit um so it's just sticking to the same race plan not getting overexcited and not going out too early too fast and you can pay massive dividends at the end if you're not careful no i mentioned about the medal there because on a previous episode i spoke to susan francia the rowing olympic champion and she was telling me that kobe bryant touched her gold medal before he went to compete and he actually still went on to win but she was like what are you doing this is a faux pas you shouldn't be touching this medal <laughs> well yes yeah, so i'm not i'm not superstitious it was more just that i was very confident i was going to win one myself so i thought i'll just wait <laughs> exactly it forces you to really go for it even more to make sure you yeah. win your own um were there any sports though that you were able to learn anything from which helped you or is there anything that you've seen recently which might help you in your in your coaching i like um in, when you go to the olympics you get given a, a form you have to fill in with all sorts of demographic information about yourself and interesting facts and this and that and the other and one of them is about who's your yeah who do you see as a, a sporting idol or a mentor and this kind of thing and i never really had anyone in particular but it, i'd always take bits and pieces from lots of different people um yeah stuff i liked about them um and the way they conducted themselves and how i'd take that forward so i always liked the people that were basically quietly confident didn't make a big scene very very talented um yeah humble in victory and gracious in defeat type uh, of thing yeah, realizing that if there's other people out there some people are going to have a bad day and not perform and you need to support them just as well as those that uh, you know in good days when you're performing and other people support you mm. who are a couple of the examples tim yeah well so one big example in um, in Beijing was my biggest rival um, in in the two years up until that time was uh, one of the Canadian guys, Adam Vancouverden, massively talented paddler. Um, you know, he's been Olympic champion, Olympic silver medalist in the past, world champion in the past. He and I always had a, a, a good battle on the water. Um, world championships the year before, it was yeah, fractions of a second between us, a first and second. And the same all year in the build-up to Beijing. Um, but in the thousand meters, he just some reason had a bad race. Um, it was all going well. And then he just started to drift backwards, uh, as people came past him and ended you know, far down the, the final, which is a really unusual result for him. Um, he still came up and congratulated me like it was the best thing ever. Um, the guy that came, um, third, Kenny Wallace, the Australian, um, had the race of his life and Adam still exactly the same. Well done, Kenny. That's an awesome result. Really positive, massive personal disappointment for him, um, but hugely um, positive and and you know, nice to everyone else that had performed. And that stood out for me as a as a really key thing and key way to behave. Mm. Um, and it's the same the next day in the 500 meter final. He hadn't been beaten in 500 meters in a single um, race since Athens, um, and got beaten then. Um, so the two things that stood out for me was his resilience to have that poor performance the day before, but still come back and make the podium. Um, but also the way he reacted to coming second for the first time in four years um, in that environment. 
and that was a, a really good thing to see and something I'd, I'd encourage. And those are the sort of values that I try and encourage within the athletes I'm going to work with now. Mm. Sounds like a class act. Uh, it'd be great if I, to get him on the podcast at some point too it, as well. I, I, Adam would be an amazing person on a podcast. But you see the same sort of thing. You're watching the Winter Olympics at the moment. Yeah, I love watching these things. I love watching other sports and seeing the way they react and the you know, the winners and the losers and and seeing the positive bits and the negative bits. But the, our two British skeleton bob athletes, so mm. uh, Lizzie and um, oh, come on, Laura. Laura Dees. Yeah. Yeah. So the way they were in the in the interview the following day, uh, yeah, Lizzie was in tears is based on what Laura was saying about her all the positive things that she was saying about her and it was such a nice thing to see and you saw that real true teamwork trying to achieve the results and, and what it means to them um, and there's a lot of positives you can get from, from seeing people like that mm. and I think there's a lot of those sort of people around involved in sport um, Yeah, we're all essentially amateur sports people in, in thrust into the limelight for a very brief period when it comes to the Olympic Games yeah, it's it's amazing. You you don't hear about Elise Christie for three years, and then you can't not turn on a radio station, a TV channel, without hearing about her for two weeks. Exactly, um, and then yeah, then it'll disappear again yeah. <laughs> for another three years. But <laughs> never mind that they're still training, competing, winning world championships left, right, and centre. And I was saying that's the thing that's what's interesting is that the world's erasing the same people, and. You know, getting a world championship gold medal is amazing, but it's just the Olympics carries something different about it. Even though you're racing the same people, it just seems to carry that extra weight, um, including the extra disappointment when you don't achieve. And it's it's a really hard thing to deal with. Cause you've got to wait another four years until you can try and do the same again. And a lot happens in four years. Was there any race in particular that you lost, which really you struggled to cope with for a little while? Um, not really. I think, you know... I, I was always fairly realistic. I appreciated all the good races I had. Um, uh, I, I was more often surprised by good performance than disappointed by bad performance. Yeah, the, the times when I haven't raced as well, I, I, I could justify the reasons why. Um, London, for example, seemed like a really bad result for me because I was yeah, finishing the bottom of the bottom of the final. Um, but it was actually my best result in two years um, following a a major shoulder injury and required surgery and things to fix. So I could take the disappointment was how you'd view it externally based on my previous results. But if you looked at how I'd gone that year and the progression I was making following the surgery, it was actually my best result mm. in two years. Yeah. So, um, so that was a disappointment in terms of, I would love to have you know, finished my last Olympics on a high. Um, but I have no regrets from training and competing and, 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 fighting my way to get to to london olympics and and delivering a yeah solid performance anyway yeah representing your home country on home soil so so how do you relax tim if you even get any time to do any of that when you're not thinking about or watching sport or being involved in medicine what do you do just to chill <laughs> so i'm i'm all grown up now i say i got married now i've got two young kids uh, five and seven um, and I get a lot of enjoyment out of spending time with them. Time with the family to me is massively important. Um, and uh, is another reason you know, why I was kind of getting more encouraged into coaching with the medical side of things was the shift work and the shift patterns were taking you away from your family, not just uh, you know, physically away, but also mentally because you were just exhausted when you, whenever I was home. Um, 
and so time with the family is a is a key way to relax for me um doing you know normal families type things going away camping and playing in the garden and doing silly things like that um and then i'm a bit of a, a geek as well uh <laughs> ready to control flying planes and helicopters and silly oh, things like that drones uh yeah it's, a, it's funny you should mention that one of the coaches has one um that we tried out a couple of days ago as part of our sport uh, analysis um, side of things so we actually were filming um, some of our athletes on the water so filming this from directly overhead front side back getting perspectives that you can't see um yeah from the bank to try and improve the way that we coaching technique um and how we might make some adaptations to boats and uh, and to try and improve performance so yeah so there's a weirdly full circle from uh, <laughs> from from my sort of yeah, hobby stuff from when i was a kid and um, through to potentially using that in high performance mm. sport as well did you learn anything from those first bits of filming yeah it's really useful so we were looking at the way um looking overhead of one of the athletes at how the boat was yawing so the back moving side to side with the paddling um, which will give us a bit of an idea of whether we need to change anything. Like the, uh, the sprint boats, we have a very long design to go in a straight line and have a small rudder on the back to help you steer, um, but also to keep it in a straight line. And so we might end up trying a, a larger rudder to see if that helps the boat yaw less. Um, it can have the converse effect that it can actually make it drag more, um, so it could actually slow you down even though it yaws less. But we can see it, we can test it, try it, and reanalyze and see if it makes any difference did you fiddle a lot and adjust and innovate your equipment a lot while you were competing no not particularly um i thought about those sort of things i thought about innovations but i actually like to keep things very stock um so my boats uh, were from nello in portugal and i had yeah, a boat that could go away on a trailer to competitions one that i'd have based at the club for training in another one I'd, ha- I'd keep at home that I could take on my car for a training in different locations and they're all stock set up exactly the same so I was very very comfortable that if I had a major issue at a competition I could just jump in another boat put my seat for rest in the same places uh, and would be absolutely fine um, and I, for me that was about building in robustness into the way I was competing and training um, and that works really well I mean we, we're kind of innovating more and more now in terms of training techniques and styles um a few little bits and pieces in the boats but fairly simple fittings um that can be just transferred from one boat to another um to help in, improve your transfer of power from paddling to moving the boat forwards well that makes sense well tim it's been really good to speak to you thank you so much for your time today before you go is there anywhere in particular we can continue to follow your journey online perhaps on twitter or somewhere like that so I do have a, a Twitter account, just uh, at Tim Brabants. Um, I'm pretty poor at using it, but I'm trying <laughs> to. St- I, I use it more through the games, but I'm starting to try and use it a bit more. And also, you know, to promote some of the other athletes within our sport and some of the massive talent that there is out there from our sport and other sports. And like I say, the the, the people I find quite inspiring um, within sport and the experiences that that and values that they show, I think is quite important. I can try and share some of that on on the twitter platform as well fantastic are there any names we should be looking out for in the next few years 
So we, we, we've got the usual names. So you, Liam Heath, who was Olympic champion in the K1 200 last year, um, and Johnny Schofield, who uh, they're silver medalists in Rio as well and in the K2. They've now partnered up with a few other guys um, looking towards the K4, which 500, which is a new event um, coming into Tokyo. So we're yet to see the complete crew combination, but we've got other young guys coming through like Lewis Fletcher, Ian James, Matt Robinson, Stellion, um, and Trevor Thompson, uh, who, who are amazing athletes. And then some really talented girls. Uh, the girls K4 at the moment is looking very exciting. Uh, again, crews to be firmed up, but uh, uh, yeah, watch this space. I think we're going to get some really good results. Uh, that's in the, the guys I train. And then our, our women's C2 class, which is a new class um, fairly recently. We've got some very, very strong athletes coming through that as well. I think we'll be medal hopefuls for, for Tokyo. Oh, superb. And Tokyo will be here with us before we even know it. Only two years now. That's the great thing with the Winter Olympics. Is you only have to wait two years before you can start watching <laughs> and enjoying another Olympics yeah, we'll be back again soon. Well, Tim, thank you so much for being on the podcast and thank you for being the best in the world. Thanks, Richard. The Best in the World podcast with Richard Parr. Wonderful to speak to Tim. If you're into your canoeing, you might want to go back and listen to my interview with Etienne Stott. That's episode 14 of The Best in the World with Richard Parr. He was a canoe slalom Olympic champion. We've also spoken to David Florence, who is a canoe slalom world champion. All of them are on iTunes and on Stitcher. Just search Best in the World with Richard Barr. Go back and listen to those episodes and please give us a rating and review and press that subscribe button. And of course, if you enjoy it, tell your friends because that is the best way to spread the news and the information that we gain from the best sports stars on the planet. All right, I'll be back next week speaking to another world or an Olympic champion, world record holder or world number one on the best in the world with Richard Parr. Until then, have a great week. The best in the world podcast with Richard Parr. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.